and and when you work in work in hospital, you have to be able to be friendly with people. Um, being being angry and miserable does not get you very far. Um, although there are doctors that are like that, yeah, no doubt. Um, in surgery, the state, you know, all all branches of medicine have it, but I think in surgery, there's a lot of um, big decisions that have to made, be made pretty quickly. And when you're coming talking to patients, you know, like you're telling them some life changing stuff sometimes. Like for general surgery, like we have to cut out some of your bowel because you've got a huge bowel cancer. You know, if you're communicating that information, you 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 want the patient to be able to trust you. Cool. So we're joined today uh, by a special guest, Sanjeev, who uh, is a, well, I'll let you introduce yourself actually, because there's a number of things um, yeah. that you're involved in. Uh, so yeah, I'm San- my name's Sanjeev. I'm a, I've been doing medicine for seven years now. Um, and most of that time was doing um, orthopedic registrar work. So learning how to become a surgeon. Um, uh, born, raised in Auckland, most of my time in Auckland with little stints outside of Auckland. Did my med school here. Um, I did a undergraduate degree here in Auckland as well in neuroscience. Um, started working out in Middlemore, South Auckland, and slowly made my way through the different, ho- there's lots of different hospitals around the country. Um, and I guess over the last sort of maybe 12 months, me and another a few colleagues of mine have started um, sort of diving into medical chatbots. So most recently, we did a chatbot for measles, and we've got one right now which is active for COVID, um, which has been keeping us busy and really interesting. Yeah. yeah. So we're going to talk about actually both of those segments. We're going to talk about the registering part, and then we're going to talk about the chatbot part. Um, so I think there's a lot <clears throat> to, to break into there. Let's just start with the first part, which is around sort of the registering and thing. You know, we've talked about multiple times on this podcast series about what life of a doctor is like, what it's like in the hospital, blah, blah, blah. Yeah. But it's always been pretty sort of high level. We've, we've kept it kind of abstract. We've talked about sort of the, the philosophy behind medicine or kind of like some of the shittier parts of the job. But yeah. I want to talk about specifically, okay, if you want to go down a surgical pathway, right? And that's what you're starting off as a junior doctor. You want to go down surgical. You know, what does that actually look like? What is that really like? And what is that like in terms of the sort of daily daily grind of it daily grind it's busy it's busy and uh, I think there's a huge time commitment um, I've talked about this before and I think you don't realize how much the time commitment is until you sort of dwell into it and start doing it um, but let's take it from the perspective of a junior doctor things to think about um, you sort of have to line your even sometimes even during med school you sort of have to know that you might be attempting to do surgery or as a career you might want to start thinking about uh, where you might want to work. You might be thinking about um, sitting exams, which like everyone sits now as a house surgeon. So usually in the first or second year of um, being a doctor, um, which are the big like surgical exams, you do anatomy, physiology, pathology, all that sort of stuff. Um, and then, then you apply for a job just like you normally would to become a registrar and then you start working. And definitely I think if you talk to lots of registrars, probably the hardest part of becoming a registrar is like the first maybe three to six months because you're now thrust into it and you're now focusing on how to become one part of, you know, a certain type of doctor and also trying to figure out how to be that doctor. So you're like learning and, and also like at the same time trying to do the job. Right. Um, which can have its, uh, I guess, conflicts. Right. So, so can you, 
talk a little bit more about that transition. So, yeah. you know, when you start from house officer, cause we've talked about being a house officer multiple times and yeah. you know, that's just whatever it is. Yeah. That transition period though, that's a big jump. Huge. Yeah. Big Huge. jump. I mean, yeah. so the, 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 you know, there's a few big jumps throughout medical training, right? There's that jump from preclinical student to clinical. Yeah. And then there's a jump from clinical student to house officer. But probably I would say the biggest jump really objectively speaking is probably I think the house officer to registrar jump because, yeah. purely because the responsibility and just expectation increases yeah, just absolutely takes a huge. So, so what was that? What was that like? That's crazy. I mean, if, if for people that don't know, you know, if you go to the hospital at nighttime, there are no consultants generally there. Um, so the hospital is run by registrars. It's like really scary. It's facts. a little bit scary, yeah. but it all, you know, there's, like consultants, there's consultants available. So like, you know, there's safety there yeah. and there's certain areas where they have to have consultants around. Um, but generally registrars like the workhorses, you know, there'll be registrars who are looking after the emergency department. Um, there'll be registrars who are meant to be, you know, doing orthopedic surgery or general surgery, dealing with emergencies and stuff that needs to happen overnight. And obviously consultants come in for that. Um, but that just gives you an idea of the responsibility. So all of a sudden you've gone from being at the bottom of the rung, you know, there's registrars, consultants above you, and you're sort of being directed to do the work and running the wards and things. And then all of a sudden now you're running the hospital for your respective department. Yeah. So I, I actually, I want to delve into that a little bit more though, because I feel like, you know, that's going to be hard for people to really understand what the big difference is. So yeah. Why don't we do this? Because so you know, me and Sajid, we, we work together in the orthopedic team. <laughs> yeah. When I was a house officer, and you was my orthopedic registrar. Yeah. Um, and unfortunately for Justin, uh, it was yeah. a great time, <laughs> uh, except for seven a.m. rounds, which I mean, but I can't complain because you always there for me anyway. Um, so I'll talk about like if we are on a shift. Yeah. If we're on a shift, like an evening or night shift. Yeah. What I'll I'll say what I'm doing. Yeah. And then what you would have to be doing instead. Sure. So I would be going around the wards. I'd have. A, a, quite a large number of total patients that I'd be looking after. And that just means that primarily there are nurses who are concerned about their patient or sometimes not even concerned, just need you to fill out a whatever script or a, a little tiny thing to help a patient go to sleep or something like that. And then so you're going and you're prioritizing what the nurse is calling you about, trying to see the ones that are urgent, going there and making some kind of decision on whether effectively not trying to really diagnose as such, but thinking, is this person safe? Do I need help? Is there something more sinister going on? And if there isn't, then we would use our kind of just, you know, medical knowledge to solve that problem and make sure that they're okay and that the hospital is okay. And we're already thinking about, okay, let's not give too much more work to our seniors. Uh, let's keep our patients safe. Let's make sure everything is okay so that when everyone comes back tomorrow morning, all the patients are still alive. That's kind of what we are trying to do. Um, and we'll do that. Some nights are really busy. Some nights are, are not. And if there's a, a patient who's having a cardiac arrest or, you know, there's something serious going on and they're about to die, you know, we, we will be called, but also a lot of other people get called as well. So it's very rare for you to be as a house officer, junior, the only person on a scene dealing with a serious issue, making the serious calls in an urgent matter. It does happen, but not usually for very long and not very often either. And in those cases, it's usually just do the basics and just do that until help, help arrives. And that's kind of what being a junior doctor is like. So yes, there's stress and yes, there's a big learning curve around doing that as well, but it is a way you know, in a way, I think I only had to do really sort of three or four encore shifts to really get a feel for it and be pretty comfortable with it. 
Um, so that's kind of what it's like as a house officer. So what would it be like for the registrar? So yeah, that's a really good example. So like, you know, someone's having a cardiac arrest and you wait, you know, you're there, you'll start doing stuff and then someone will turn up. We're meant to be the someone that turns up. And so that could be like your first day as a registrar or you could be, you know, you're almost about to become a consultant. So big spectrum of like the uh, skill mix that you'll get. In terms of like orthopedic registrar stuff, so, you know, evening time comes. So let's say we've been doing the whole day, we've been maybe in the clinic with the consultants or stuff, seeing people with broken bones, following them up. And then, you know, four or five o'clock hits and you get given a the grenade, which is like the phone. <laughs> yeah. Which gets all the phone calls. So this phone gets phone calls from the emergency department, the community, other departments within the hospital, and sometimes other hospitals as well. If you have never, if you're someone that doesn't have a lot of empathy, watching a surgical registrar holding this phone will give you empathy. <laughs> Sometimes that thing goes off like nonstop yeah. when it's busy, like just crazy. And then all of these could be legitimate jobs and things that that person has to add onto their list of things to do. Yeah. So, yeah. I mean, yeah, once I remember doing, doing one evening shift and I, I took a phone call and it must have lasted like two minutes. And then I looked at my phone, and you know, you can see the missed calls during that <laughs> yeah. time. It's like six missed calls. Oh and you're like, God, this is what? crazy. How did that even get, how it's did that even happen? crazy. Um, so yeah, in the evenings, we'll take all those different phone calls and most of the times it'll be either for advice. So, you know, I've got this person who's got a broken ankle. What do I, what do, I do with this? What do you want me to do with this? Um, or it might be the emergency department saying, hey, this guy's got a broken ankle. What do you think of the x-ray? Oh, does not need an operation? And then you'll get calls about reviewing patients who are already in the ward that might have all sorts of weird orthopedic-y conditions, which we don't have to dwell in today, but like all sorts of you know, different infections or different new broken bones that weren't picked up for some reason. Or you might have a big multi-trauma come in, you know, from up north, they've been helicoptered in, they've got lots of mangled limbs and broken bones. And amongst holding the phone, seeing people in ED, you have to go see this person who's in bad space um, and sort of stabilize them. And then sometimes you'll get people who are really sick and they need surgery like right now or in the next couple of hours. Um, that's when you have to sort of call your, your sen my senior, which would be the consultant to, um, to take them to theater and operate on them. Yeah. And that's sort of where there's a lot of tricky nuances that you just don't realize like, oh, do I call them now? Should I call them in half an hour? You always, and it like the, the rule is if you think you think about calling them, you should always call them because mm -hmm. um, it's always about being safe. Yeah. And then at nighttime, that change that shift changes again. It's like, oh, does this person need to go for an operation now or first thing in the morning? Mm. Do I call them now? And you're like, you're you're like you're being anxious about the weirdest stuff. Mm. Um, and the, that's because right now you are the you've got all the responsibility for yeah. these patients and for everything that's going on. So and there's actually something that you talked about, and it was really brief, but I want to just draw attention to that is the fact that you know if if a GP calls you, they they are calling you and at you the person speaking, you are the representative for that base that specialty, and so it's kind yeah. of you know when you give your opinion, it's like this is the opinion that orthopedic you know like whatever is giving yeah and so when they're documenting it down it's like spoke to the you know orthopedic registrar yeah you know this was their opinion on it and that is never a situation that would happen as a house officer you would never really get asked for a specialty opinion unless you were some crazy genius that was <laughs> well known throughout the lands yeah you will never get asked for an opinion you would get asked to deliver a message yeah and if you go and review a patient even if you're working in that department i mean i worked in general surgery for a long time as well like nine months of general surgery. Yeah. And even if I were to go, I'm never going to be the 
general surgeon, like I'm basically a messenger for the opinion of the general surgical yeah. team. And just that shift in terms of someone calling you and your answer actually having to be a bit more definitive is that's a real big difference for anyone that's not really familiar with that clinical setting. Yeah. Um, so that that's a, that's a huge kind of power shift. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I think, and the response, you just don't realize the responsibility as well because it's, it's like your first couple of days, you don't know the answer to the, sometimes the question that's on the other side. You know, when you're very senior, you know a lot of the yeah. answers, but when you first start out, you have no idea. So you either ask someone else, like a senior, for that, or you sort of sometimes freestyle it, you know, read textbooks, find the knowledge somewhere, or, you know, say, okay, I don't actually know the answer, be honest, and say, oh, I'll get back to you when I know the answer within the next few hours, or if it's nothing, nothing that urgent, I'll call you tomorrow and let you know. Yeah. Um, and again, it's the same thing. It's about being safe. So how does the, how does the learning occur? You know, there's, there's so much stuff going on, you know, yep. like how does that actually work out? Uh, it's very, it's very learn on the fly. Yeah. Yeah. So this, the grenade I was talking about, it's like horrible to have. Um, and I think almost every surgical registrar will attest to that. But at the same time, every phone call you get is like a learning opportunity. So, you know, GB calls you with a problem and if you don't know it, you're going to look it up, mm. you're going to learn it. And now you've got that knowledge. Mm -hmm. And then every time that same sort of thing comes up, you'll pick up extra nuances and things you might not have realized. And then that stuff just sort of gets cemented in. Yeah. And it's, I think it's amazing how quickly you can actually end up oh, learning. Yeah. yeah. Like within the first six months, you're, it's just like, I think anything that you start, you start the first, you know, six months or, you know, that's always a variable time, but the first six months, your knowledge just flies. Yeah. Okay. That, that's you committing it to us committing to it as well like if you're not interested in it and you don't want to do the job your knowledge is not going to fly okay well that's yeah. a good segue into the um next question that i was going to ask is what what do you think makes a good surgical registrar Be being a good surgical registrar um before i started always i asked everyone i think one of the biggest things is essentially you should be committing yourself to living at the hospital in a way like it's just sad you're, you're the like, first you should be the first one in yeah you should be the last one out yeah i mean you definitely lived by that from what i remembered you were for some you, of it yeah you, you really <laughs> tried to be the last one out even when you were coming out of like a night shift yeah and you really should have been the first one first one out yeah and it's i think part of that is because especially surgery surgery is um experiential thing like you can teach the smartest person how to do a procedure but the only way to get good at it, just like you know, you read lots of books that talk about 10,000 hours. You just have to do lots of it. Mm. So the way to get good at being a builder is to build. Mm. The way to get good at surgery is to do surgery. Yeah. Um, and the only way to get good at doing lots of surgery is to be around when the surgery happens. Yeah. So I guess if you're coming off from like a busy on call or whatever, you probably wouldn't really get chance to be in theater during that entire time because yeah. of the fact that you're busy managing patients that are outside of the theater. So yeah. after that, when... The morning hits and new patients are about to go into theater yep. that's your opportunity to get in there and see some cases if, if there's yep. available while competing i guess in a way with all the other registrars yeah. who are trying to get experience as well yeah i mean that's and that's yeah there's lots of opportunities and it's about putting yourself in those opportunities so that's like one example yeah is you know after your shift there's surgery happening you're going to try and get in there so you can either watch learn or do if you're getting up towards that seniority um even when you're on call. So, you know, you're taking these phone calls, seeing patients in the wards, you're still trying to juggle being in theater and do the operation. So it's sort of, you'll see, I think a lot of surgical registrars lose weight by accident because they're running up and down the hospital. Yeah. Just 
doing a lot of stuff. It's, they're busy shifts. Yeah, I mean, the whole, you know, 10,000 steps sort of thing. I think most doctors, even not a surgical registrar, most yeah. doctors will hit their 10,000 steps by lunchtime. Yeah. You know, just yeah. walking around, you know, seeing patients and just, yeah. Yeah, I think I did. Um, I had one on course shift, which was really bad, about 15 hours, but I did like maybe 18K on my pedometer thing. Yeah, it's yeah. just just like insane. Yeah, I mean, you're just, distance. Yeah, I'm not running. Like, I just, yeah, you just literally seeing pay. Yeah, yeah, I mean, yeah. like, uh, yeah, I did. Um, yeah, I did like thirty thousand steps uh, on a single like long day at, of yeah. acute it's acute insane, right? and it's like just you're literally potentially walking nonstop for like several hours, like virtually no yeah. rest, like only stopping for like minutes yeah. at a time, and just constantly. Maybe, yeah, maybe, maybe, yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, okay. Um, in two words, if you were to sort of summarize, like not two words, but two factors. Yeah. What do you think is the, the two most important factors that would dictate whether a surgical registrar is able to get onto their desired surgical training program? So hopefully by now, by the way, if you know, you should be a little bit more familiar with these terms because we've talked about it before, but just in case it's your first time listening, so surgical registrar is kind of like that role that they have, but the training program is kind of their, their part of the college's training to become a specialist. So they're, although they're all overlapping, they're not quite the same sort of thing. So you can be a surgical registrar trying to get onto a specific training program, or you can be a surgical registrar floating around different departments, getting a taste for what you enjoy and 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 doing that sort of thing as well. So trying to get onto a training program, which is the most competitive bottleneck yeah. of pretty much the entire medical career, yeah. effectively. Yeah. Uh, could I do it with three? Okay, I'll give you three. I can do three. Yeah. <laughs> I'll give three. And this is from um, one of our old bosses who, who talked to me about it. And he said, pretty much to be a surgical try and get on, you have to be able. So you have to be able to do some surgery. You have to have some, be able to like pick up knowledge and learn. Mm -hmm. um, which, How high does that skill level need to be? Well, that you know, you could like I always tell people, you can teach a monkey to do surgery. It's it's like building. You just have to keep uh, doing the surgical stuff. But um, it's more about can you hold knowledge and maintain it, and you know, can you study? Can you um, you know apply the knowledge that's been given to you or right. picked up? Right. So able that's the, so able is pretty broad in that thing. It's not you shouldn't be like a master surgeon just to get on to learn how to become a surgeon. That makes no sense. Yeah. Um, and then the other one was being being available. And I think that's probably one of the most important one, which is to do with like dedication, mm. being around, all, not all the time, but being around a lot, you know, taking um, all the opportunities that are around and really being dedicated to, you know, it is a bit of a, it's hard work. Like being proactive. Being, yeah, be, being, pro, being proactive, you know, like sticking around beyond yep. your shift. Yeah. Um, you know, going that extra mile. And um, the other one is being affable, which is just mm. being friendly, not being, you know, a dick. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I mean, that goes a long way. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, and I think there's a really way. good three things to live by. And you can apply them to many things, but I think it's really important um, sort of factors to, to take into account when you're trying to become a surgeon. Mm. Yeah. I want to talk a bit more about the affable part because I think that is really important and also overlooked. And we talk about that a lot, actually. And um, if you're listening on the podcast, you just missed an incredibly epic scene change, which everyone on YouTube will have noticed. <laughs> but um, yeah, that's incentive for you to just make sure to check us out on YouTube. So we, we've talked a lot about the idea of, on this podcast before, we've talked about the idea of IQ versus EQ. And... I think people would say that of all the places where EQ is less important, it would be in like pathology or like surgery, you know, being a surgeon, like, you know, you don't need to be that emotionally intelligent to be a surgeon, you know, that's kind of that stereotypical 
if you had to pick a specialty that didn't need that emotional intelligence, yeah. it would be, you know, surgery. Personally, I don't think that's true at all. Yeah, I totally agree with you as well. Yeah. Yeah. And I think least of all because of the fact that, I mean, let's be honest, like surgeons are often a little bit more just direct, you know, in the way that they communicate. Yeah. There are surgeons, I, I would say if you were to plot every doctor on a spectrum of just like niceness feeling when you talk to them, yeah. you know, the medics do overall average a little bit more on the nice feeling curve. Yeah. Um, GPs, GPs probably the most. Yeah, GPs Gen were, generally. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, but like the, uh, in my personal view, you know, uh, setting aside the surgical skill. Yeah. Um, I think the the like the the surgeons that I see that the patients not only love but also that I just think are the best surgeons who the juniors love and as a result they feel safe around yep. and can you know communicate to and just have a great team and it's just like a joy to work within that department they're the surgeons that are like great people first of all first and foremost and are in themselves sort of affable yeah um and so i think it is kind of interesting that the affable part was in the so why is it the affable part so important to get onto a training program in the first place um well i guess there's lots of different like it sort of blends into everything like you can't in and when you work in work in hospital you have to be able to be friendly with people um being being angry and miserable does not get you very far um although there are doctors that are like that yeah no doubt um in surgery the state you know all all branches of medicine have it but i think in surgery there's a lot of um big decisions that have to may be made pretty quickly and when you're coming talking to patients you know like you're telling them some life-changing stuff sometimes like for general surgery like we have to cut out some of your bowel because you've got a huge bowel cancer you know if you're communicating that information you 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 want the patient to be able to trust you and being affable is going to foster trust you know mm. if you meet a surgeon who's in like a, a nightmare like you're, you're like i don't i don't want surgery that could save my life because you're the surgeon and you've just been horrible to me um, and I think that's re it's one of the really key th big things and um, when people apply to becoming a surgeon is that communication and also being quite respectful of people is like one of, the, one of the top things that they really look for in trainees. I would even go so far as to say, and correct me if I'm wrong, I would say that if your level of affability doesn't meet a th high enough threshold, you would just not get in no matter how good you are in the other areas if people just do not like you yeah you just will not get in or you'll be rolling on that applying for a long time yeah I, and i think that's fairly true to to the most part you know if you're not liked by people you're gonna have a lot of trouble getting on because one no one likes you so you know getting references is already going to be very hard you know it's just like any other job you need references when you apply um and you know the only way to would be to get on is to actually be able to change that you know you become friendlier find out what is it that you're about you or your personality or maybe your approach that's just not connecting because the last thing you want is someone to go through five six years seven years of training and then come out the other end and it turns out yeah you're great at operating but you cannot talk to patients mm -hmm. and patients do not want to get operate on you so what's the point of us having trained you right yeah mm. okay let's transition to talking about the chatbot thing yeah so Let's just start from the beginning because that's like chatbots is, is, I mean, health tech is, you know, it's a, it's a big thing for yeah. sure. But health bot, uh, chatbots are just so random. They're real random. 
Yeah. So yeah. where where did that start from, and where, like, what was the kind of driving motivation behind it? So um, it actually started with my with my mate uh, Kanan, who's the other person that started the chatbot stuff. Um, he was also a surgical registrar, and then took some time out to sit his exams and um, sort of do other life milestones, like get married and start a family. Um, and he started sort of somehow finding himself in in the health tech sort of sector. Um, and he was just thinking about sort of, you know, how can we use technology more efficiently in medicine, you know, to, there's so many different problems in medicine, surely the technology has come so far that we could use it and apply it to be able to tackle some of these big things. So one of them was like, you know, people who don't have access to healthcare or health information or have poor health literacy. Um, so the thing came about with measles, that there was, there was terrible health information and lots of misinformation out in the community in New Zealand and also like in Australia and the islands. Mm. Um, and he started playing, he started looking into a chatbot and he's like, hey man, so you have a look? Like we both started look, playing on this chatbot and we're like, oh, this is actually really fun. So like it started out as just like, oh man, this is really fun. It's a bit different. We're applying um, all the stuff we've learned, all the medicine and stuff we know and putting it together in this sort of like weird thing in the chatbot. And then we just sort of put it out into the ether mm. to see what would happen. Like there was no like, oh, let's change the world with this chatbot. Um, let's just see what happens and whatever we can we can take from this, whatever lessons we can use and build on it. Mm-hmm. Um, and then we put it out and it did okay in New Zealand and then all of a sudden like Samoa just exploded with measles cases. Mm. So this um, was the measles bot? This was the measles chatbot. That's the first one that we did yeah. and that's how it all started. Mm. Um, and then when it got to Samoa, like a whole bunch of Samoan people were using the chatbot and it was just like basic information, you know, like, what is measles? What is an vaccination? Why is it important to have a, you know, yeah, a but vaccine? This basic stuff is just, yeah. I mean, you mentioned the word health literacy before. Yeah. So if you're not familiar with what health literacy means, it, it's talking about, it's just like the word literacy would imply. It talks about the idea of how much insight does someone have about health and health education and their own health and how to be healthy and what it means to access the right health and all of that sort of stuff that people, especially in developed countries might even take for granted in some places that level of basic health literacy isn't even sort of there. So, you know, what, the stuff that you're putting in the chat box, I would say that most lay people would have no idea about. Yeah. 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 Like lots of people do like doctors do maybe nurses like nurses and people in the health industry, but there were people just asking like, what are measles? Like what actually is it? Mm. You know, uh, what's a vaccine? Why does a vaccine work? You know, uh, where can I go find a vaccine? Um, you know, what's happening with measles in my country at the moment? Why can I not get access to a vaccine? Um, all sorts of questions like that. Um, you know, what are the side effects of measles? What happens? Why is it so bad? Um, all that sort of stuff. And it was all just packaged so people could just ask questions to the chatbot and it'll just sort of come back with an answer like straight away. Um, which was really cool because you see people like using the chatbot like two o'clock in the morning, three o'clock in the morning. Oh, that's just cool. random times of the night. You know, you can't just go see a doc and be like, hey, Tell me more about measles <laughs> at three o'clock in the morning. And pe- people are busy, man. If you've got like a couple of kids, your life's very busy. Yeah. Um, and if you want to know about the stuff that's potentially affecting your kids or if, and your family, you you know, it's nice to have that accessibility. Yeah. Yeah. So you chucked the chatbot out in the, in the ether. Yeah. And then it, Samoa exploded with measles and yeah. you got more recognition, I guess, sort of through that. I think that, is that, when that um the news article was yeah we had a couple of news articles that got published about um like the fact that we had made this chatbot to sort of combat the access and the misinformation which was another big issue at the time Mm. there were a lot of social media pages sort of driving anti-vaccination yeah 
against measles and against other stuff as they've always been doing, which is a bit annoying. Um, and then, yeah, we ended up getting onto um, TV NZ Breakfast. Oh, I didn't really know that. Cool. Yeah, with um, John Campbell interviewing us. We thought he was going to grill us like and just smash us, but he was, oh, yeah. he was awesome. He's such yeah. a great interviewer. Yeah. yeah. A really nice guy. And, um, you know, the, the popularity and our chatbot sort of just started growing more and more after that, which was really cool. And um, I think we, and, and as this whole time while it was happening, things were coming through, like people would ask questions in our chatbot didn't have it programmed in or didn't have uh, something right. inside it. And so we'd manually answer back. So a doctor, like the two people yeah. behind it, and then we got a third guy, Cole. Um, we were answering questions as doctors. And then we were like, oh, man, so many people are asking the same thing. Let's just build Program some. it in. Yeah, yeah. And yeah. so like slowly just like developing. So it got from like a really small basic chatbot as the months went on, like it got really complex and all sorts of different paths and all different sort of questions. And it was, um, I think we really just enjoyed building the chatbot itself, but the mm -hmm. fact that it was doing good was like awesome. Yeah. Yeah. And then, so that transition to the, cause then the, the, you know, coronavirus hit and then the, you, you had the COVID chatbot. Yep. Yeah. I mean, yeah, yeah. And was that kind of just like a natural extension and you're like, okay, well there's a pandemic now. Might as well just exactly smash out another chatbot. Yeah. Yeah. Smash out another chatbot. Yeah. yeah. Um, yeah, I mean, we were, we were coming off the end of our measles, the measles stuff, and we we're like, okay, we learned a whole bunch of stuff, like how people react to chatbots, how people react to social media, um, and I'm sure anyone that's in the social media, you know, space knows, with the positive comes bits of negative, like, there'll always be haters and stuff like that, yeah. you'll always get that, that's just the nature of yeah. it, um, who, who, keyboard warriors. Yeah. Who, who's gonna, ha who's hating on a COVID screening chatbot? Yeah, you'd be surprised, yeah. <laughs> All right, you know, some people need to grow a brain cell. <laughs> um, I think there's a lot of it's like, oh, who are these people, like, you know, if people put a, we'll put a chatbot into the community, like, who are the people behind this? Yeah. So I think there's a trust, a trust yeah. thing. Um, but yeah, we took all our learnings from Mitara, the measles chatbot, and then plugged it in. You know, COVID was starting to happen sort of late Jan, early February. We're like, this is like prime time. We've learned already heaps. Yeah. Let's do the same thing for COVID. Mm. And let's sort of, let's build on that, make it more, a bit more fancy, do some screening, you know, show them where they can go get a test or a swab. Yeah. That sort of stuff. Because that was the big thing, right? was like people, you know, there wasn't enough screening and yeah. everyone was wondering like, do I have it? How do I know if I've got it? Yeah. Like. What are the symptoms? You know, is it a is it a cough or is it a sneeze? Or yeah. it's like, no, 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 it can't be a cough or all of that sort of stuff. And that's when I actually first saw your uh, when I saw Amio on my Facebook. It just turned up feed, yeah, yeah when yeah. I was in the middle of like the answering people because people ask me about that sort of stuff all the <laughs> yeah, time. Yeah, yeah. yeah, like please go talk to your doctors, please. But but I think even the doc, even the doc, like we had doctors use yeah, the even GPs were yeah. You know, yeah. I remember um, talking to some of my friends about how no one really knew what was going on. The yeah. information was just so not available. There yeah. were, you know, there's these Facebook groups where people from all around the world, doctors are talking and just sharing information on yeah. just new stuff that they're learning. It was yeah, just it was crazy. crazy. It was so crazy. That's really just like, you don't get that type of stuff on a daily basis working as a doc. Like that stuff just doesn't have like movie yeah. type stuff. It's cool. It was like a lot of collaboration from that perspective. Yeah. Um, yeah, I think, and I think the information, it was just so much information. People we just, I think it just bore down to like, we just didn't, people just didn't know. Yeah, just so like know. every time new things were coming up, you know, the screening changed or the criteria for getting a swab changed or, you know, actually this medication is not good for COVID or maybe you don't want to take this or um, like even how it travels, like people didn't initially think it was airborne. Yeah. Like it was just off surface and then like, ah, oh, 
maybe we should we're not sure we're not sure <laughs> yeah. we're so maybe we should counter their born because be, we might as well you know not take those risks um so yeah there's lots of different information development and so as all that sort of stuff was happening we're just always just like oh man we have to reprogram this change this the screening change oh man like well, let's let's do this it was fun and like it was really fun doing that stuff we really enjoyed it mm. um and i think we had some feedback from doctors like gps and stuff they were using they found it really useful because they could like for the screening tool they could just like be like okay instead of going through the whole document i can just type in everything i've learned about this patient real quick yeah yeah, yeah. oh yeah you need to solve we'll get your sort yeah. oh wow yeah so that was really cool feedback to have like an yeah. actual doc like another gp using that mm -hmm. yeah well then actually i mean it's it would have been better than like a screen whatever screening thing that they were using before that anyway to figure out because of the fact that there just wasn't that information available for the GP. So yeah, probably what yeah. was on that chatbot was going to be the most like up-to-date, reliable screening tool that they would have had actual yeah, access yeah. to. And it was fast. Like, and it was instantaneous. It's yeah. instantaneous as opposed to, wait a minute, do you fit this? I don't, uh, I don't know. Let's go start, start a bing. Let's go. And they're like, and then, oh, wait, you know, a new screening criteria came through and you're like, oh man, I have to go do it, restart again because I've just learned one criteria and it changes again. Yeah. So what is that? What is this whole? You know, if we look at the chatbot thing as a, as a kind of project that you've got going in your life, yeah. what's that kind of doing for you? Like, what's where is that sort of, what's that hitting? <laughs> what, yeah. a, what an abstract question. Yeah, yeah. Um, I guess like all three of us that are involved in it now, we had and we had a couple of people always sort of in and out. Um, I think we all were it was like sort of invigorating us like it's quite busy because we all work clinically during the whole time so we're working clinically and working on it like night time mm. evenings in the weekends but it also gave us energy yeah in a weird way yeah and i'm sure you like lots of people Definitely. feel the same people yeah. who have side hustles have projects you know the passion for that sort of stuff so it, and it just spills over into the yeah. rest of your life which is really good yeah um so yeah that's what it did for me it just made us interested very interested in COVID just because it was the topic, mm. but also very interested in technology, very interested in, in doing stuff outside of the medicine. But, it, but then even when I was doing my medical work, I was a bit more engaged in the medical work as well. As well. And like talking to patients, I was a bit happier because I knew <laughs> I had this other stuff happening as well. So yeah. like overall just mood, all that sort of stuff just went up yeah, because of this project. Yeah. So it had like life benefits. Yeah, right? absolutely. Yeah. 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 So at the, so at the moment, where are you working? Uh, it's a good question. I'm, I'm locuming. So yeah. I'm just doing like small contracts all over the place. Um, last week I was working in Kaitaia. They've got a small like rural hospital up there. Um, and then uh, next next week I'm going down to Invercargill to do some more orthopedic registrar work. So your sort of, your current kind of situation is that you're locuming. Yeah. You've got this other project that you've yeah. got. And in terms of how I think difficult, because there's a sort of set path on, you know, what being a doctor sort of involves. You never really talk about these types of things. Yeah. Like what if you have another thing that you want to do on the side? Yeah. Or what if you realize that you want to use your medical knowledge and skills for something additional, you know? No one really has these conversations about what you can do with that and what that means and how you kind of structure your life around that. Yeah. How was that, that part for you? Yeah, I guess it's just exactly like no one ever talks about it that much. And I think... If you talk to a lot of doctors, you'll find they do have some sort of side project, hobby. You know, you'll find lots of doctors, for some reason, lots of doctors like doing marathons. They love yeah, running. Yeah, they're There's really into of, that, like sustained cardio. Yeah, but I mean, it takes, you've put quite a lot of effort into, you know, training for a marathon and then running a marathon. Um, but you just have to make it work. I think if you want to follow something, you just have to fit it around, you know, like 
you might have to take some leave or you just have to do it in the evenings, do it at night time. I think if there's something, a passion you want to follow, but you still want to do medicine as well, you should just have to sort of meld them together some way. Mm. Um, and th- that doesn't always work, but you could, you know, you, you'll make it work. Yeah. And there's a sort of level of prioritization that Absolutely. occurs with that. And yeah. Yeah. So, you know, you could locum as, as part of that solution. Was, by the way, locuming is basically just part-time doctoring in places where they need doctors. So, um, yeah, that's just what it is. There are also full-time locums. Yeah, 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 yeah. which yeah, which is interesting in itself. Yeah. yeah, so usually in like rural places where they don't have regular sort of um, docs supplied. Yeah. Is that kind of where full-time locum? Um, I mean, I think some people, the locum, locuming is probably another topic altogether, but it's really flexible because yeah. you just pick up work whenever you want. So you could work six months full-time hardcore and then have six months off, or you could work a whole year doing locuming. It just means you're in different environments quite often. Versus like a contract that you would have, you know, at Auckland Hospital or Tangare Hospital or whatever. Yeah. So super flexible. Yeah, way more flexible. And I think if you've got side projects, something that you can consider like as an interim, you yeah. know, if you've got something that, you know, you're doing full-time work and your side hustle or project or passions are all sort of spilling over a bit too much, you can't get enough leave, then locuming might be a nice in-between because you can work it so that you can really dedicate some more time. To yeah, it. but you've still got that financial stability from yeah from, from the working. locum money, That's which right. which actually pays more than your normal thing would. So yeah. it's, a, it's a good um, mix. If you, um, final kind of statement, if you had to give one, uh, one piece of advice to a current, let's say, surgical registrar yeah. uh, who's having a tough time, yeah. what would you say? Remember why you want to do surgery. If you, if you had to give one piece of advice to someone who's up and coming, maybe in med school, wanting to look at going down surgery, what would you tell them? Go for it. Yeah, I think, you're, uh, I think uh, for surgery, if, you're, if you even have a little twinkle that, oh, maybe I could do surgery, just try it. Just like, try do it. it. Yeah. And you may just surprise yourself. You may be like, man, this is made for me. Mm. Or you may be like, man, actually, I want to do something else. But you'll never know until you try it or you do it. Yeah, and I think people that really love it do really love it. That's and right. That, that fire is sort of there. I've definitely yeah. noticed that. Yeah, they die. They die hard. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, and if you if you ever had a piece of advice to give to someone who wants to start a medical chatbot, yeah, go for, again, go for it. <laughs> yeah, like like for us, it was just it just happened. It just happened. Um, and I think maybe not even just chatbots, but if there's something you want to do and and it's something a bit different, don't be um, don't be put off by people's comments and stuff like that. Just go for it. Do it. Give it, a, give it a shot and um, you'll take away something from it. Thanks for tuning in to Subcut. If you guys have any suggestions for content, please make sure you send it through. You can get in touch and follow us on Facebook, Instagram and YouTube or find us on our website at jttmed.com slash subcut. Subcut is a podcast brought to you by JTT. If you or anyone you know is interested in a career in medicine, make sure to get in touch and check us out at jttmed.com.